This is God's holy word. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Please be seated. You know, I just want to let you know, sometimes when you're reading through commentaries and you're looking at how a passage breaks down and there's ways that really scripture does break down there are points being made and all the commentaries basically said you know you're supposed to go all the way to verse seven and uh and then you you're ready for verse eight and these because paul really has broken this down in walk in love next in july we'll look at walk in light and hopefully um by at least we hope by August, we'll be walking in wisdom. And that really is how this chapter 5 does break down. For some reason, when I was preparing last week's sermon, I just did not have peace with going all the way to, to verse 7 and just moving forward. And quite frankly, I've, as I entered this week really thinking about, okay, what's the sermon that I'm going to preach out of these two verses? I in some ways, was really perplexed. But as the week progressed, as God often does, he really began to impress upon my heart what he really wanted to say. And so I hope that as we look at this this morning, that we hear how these verses, at least for us, needed to be separated. Because I think that what we have to look at this morning is important for us to see and to hear. Second Peter, which you might say, okay, Dennis, that has nothing to do with Ephesians. Well, it might not seem that it has anything to do with Ephesians, but then again, we need to remember that while the Bible has many human authors, it only has one divine one, and that would be the Spirit of God. Second Peter 1, 3 through 4 says this, and I want you to listen to it. Divine power has granted to us, that is all believers, all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now, for those of you that used to be in my RUF, that that verse should ring very loud and clear to you because I can't tell you how many times I would sit down and remind students that His divine power has given us some things that pertain to life and godliness. Just some of those things. Now you've got to go out and figure out what the rest of them are. Work hard. Do the best you can. Now, it says there, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which, here's the part I want us to consider for today, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now here's the thing I want you to see that Paul is really about. It's the same thing that Peter's about. Christ saved us not to plunge us back into worldliness. He has given us precious promises, not so that we could despise them and run head back into the very thing He saved us from, the very reality He came to deliver us from. And this is really important for us to look at because in some ways what I started to realize is Paul really is setting up right here his next move, it's kind of a, these two verses are kind of a transition into his next one, which is walk in light. The next time we look at this, we'll remember what Paul says in Colossians. He brought us out of, delivered us out of the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his son. 
Peter said in 1 Peter that we were delivered out of darkness and brought into His glorious light that we might proclaim the excellencies of His greatness. Notice that that has nothing to do with He brought us, He saved us, He brought us out, He did all these things so that we could go right back into the very things He saved us from. Or even worse, that having been brought up in the church and walking in His ways, that we could just basically go and do all the things which we, by God's grace, have been spared from having to grow up in. See, one of the things you need to understand is that Christ loves us so much that if you have the privilege of being born into a Christian home, don't you understand how grievous it is that you would despise those benefits, despise, disregard, disconnect yourself from those covenant blessings and promises. You have these precious promises. So what I want us to begin to do is realize that Paul really is trying to set us up. He really wants us to get it. The good news of the gospel is that you don't go back to what you've been delivered from. Why? Because you were made for something so much better. And you see it in the glory of Christ. The perfect man. I want you to think about that. No matter what the world illumines to you and seems to captivate you with, it is a lie. It is a perversion. It is a destitute way of life. And as we looked last week, we realized that the real answer to the whole dilemma of walking in love is to remember that the whole point is it's about Jesus. And the point I want you to get this week is because it's about Jesus, because of these precious promises which have been brought to bear in the person and work of Christ, that we ought not be people who disregard or despise Christ. He is our life. How can we disregard Him and be careless with Him and to treat Him as if He's indifferent to us? I've said this before, before and I'll say it again. Never have the mindset that you ask yourself, well, what would I do if Jesus was with me? If you are in Christ, He is with you. That's one of the precious promises. I will never leave you or forsake you. And we ought to be people who value that, who love that, who delight in that. And tragically, modern Christianity seems to despise the precious promises. It seems to find its hope in much of the same places that the world does. And we seem to divine our wisdom not by God, but by our own thinking and mindsets. So what Paul begins to say to us then is this, as we think about the precious promises, that we were once, remember what chapter 2 of Ephesians said to us, we were once a helpless people. Those first ten verses remind us you were helpless. You were without hope. You were under God's wrath as sons of disobedience just like the rest. And God took you out of that and brought you into His kingdom. You were a hopeless people, He tells us. You were cut off. You were not part of the people of God. You were not connected to the covenants of promise. 
You were a hopeless, helpless, worthless people. And Romans says it even more when it says we were helpless. It says we were helpless and we were enemies of Christ. And right at that point is when he died for us. Before we dig all the way into Ephesians chapter 5, turn with me to 2 Thessalonians. I want to look at, at what Paul is, or excuse me, I'm sorry. I said second, I meant 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 4, if you find it, we need to get you a new Bible. Second Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 3 and reading through verse 8. Listen to what he says. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, your growing in holiness. That didn't say that was his ultimate purpose. It just says his will is, is that those of you he's called in light of the greatness of Christ. His will is that you grow in holiness, that you grow in sanctification, that you abstain. And here is the point from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. I think it's really interesting in that verse, he says, but God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in the sphere of holiness. Notice that Paul's giving us the same idea in Ephesians. We live in a sphere of holiness because we are united to Christ. So if we live in holiness, that is our condition before God. How can we go and plunge ourselves into that which is wicked and unrighteous? That's the point. We were not made for going out and doing things which God has said impure. Because we live in the reality of holiness. That's Paul's whole point in Romans 6, which we hopefully will get to in a little bit. He goes on to say then in verse 8, Therefore... Whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Again, one of the promises, one of the precious promises of the Old Testament was that in the coming days, the Holy Spirit would be poured out on all God's people, not just his specific prophets, all your sons and daughters, your old men and women will prophesy, will declare, and that prophecy is not so much a gift of prophetic utterance as it is the idea of prophesying the declaration that Christ has come. The realities of the kingdom are here. The Spirit of God will be poured out into us. And do you hear what Paul's saying? Don't you understand? You're the temple. You are where the Spirit of God dwells. Think about what you are. Think about who you are. Delight yourself in those things. Don't despise them. As we come back to Ephesians chapter 5 then, let's look at verse 6 and 7. He says first, let no one deceive you with empty words. So the first point I want you to get is no deception. If we really believe in the precious promises, then we ought not be people who walk in deception. No deception. The idea probably that lies behind Ephesus and other places, as we talked about before, is in part... 
these, these, this cult worship where obviously sexual immorality was very much a part of going to worship. You went to worship, you went and had sex with temple prostitutes, both male and female. That was a reality that was going on. That was part of the Diana cult that was there in Ephesus. Partly, probably what Paul has in mind though as well, because we know this is being written to more than just Ephesus itself, is the idea of Gnosticism in its infancy. Gnosticism was not a full-blown idea until the second century, but its, its birthplace was in the first century. And this whole idea that somehow the body doesn't really matter. It's only the spirit. So as long as you take care of the spirit, what you do in the body is kind of irrelevant. Now, not all Gnostics believe that. Some of them believed in asceticism, and that's really what Paul was writing against in Colossians. These people that say, do not taste, do not handle, do not touch. But here in Ephesians, he's really looking at people who more say you're kind of separated. You know, what you, what you do with your body really does not affect your soul. Now, men and women, we've, we've heard this discussion in the last 10 years, even with some of our political leaders. What we do in the bedroom has no issue with how we lead and govern. But see, that's naive. That's naive to think that somehow those things don't affect you. They clearly do. Does it affect your ability to sign bills into law? No. Does it affect your ability to give speeches that are eloquent? No. But does it affect how you frame and reference life and what really matters to you and what really should matter to human beings made in the image of God? Absolutely. It does affect you. And so what we see then is this idea, this background of Gnosticism, which is a deception. It is a deception to say that what you do with your body is of no real consequence. That is to be deceived. First Corinthians tells us, Paul says there, that every other sin is external to ourselves, but sexual immorality is a sin that we sin against ourselves. It's not just that we sin against others, we sin against our own selves. Because we are, and he goes on to say, do you not realize that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? Another lie that we're told these days is, well, you know, some of these things just aren't that big a deal. You know, I mean, everybody has to sow their wild oats, right? You've got to, got to get it out of your system. Because if you get it out of your system, then you'll be a better husband or wife. You know, you've, you're not wondering what it would have been like if you had done these wild and crazy things. Do you realize how distorted and deceived that is? And do you realize how, in some ways, how undervaluing that is to men and women who grew up in, the, in our faith and saved themselves? I'm not, I'm not referring to the fact that people who make mistakes, people who were not believers and walked in this way, we're not talking about that. Obviously, we've talked other times about God's forgiveness is great. And people walk in wrong ways. And that forgiveness plums the depth of our sin but I'm speaking right now specifically to people who are believers or at least profess themselves to be. Do you understand how as a believer when you say, well, I just, you know, it's just not that big a deal. You know, everybody's got to kind of explore and, and figure it out for themselves. Do you realize how you cheapen what God has called you to? Do you realize how you cheapen and lessen people who are striving? Because what you really should be doing is joining together to pray. 
Is it hard? Of course it is. Is it hard as you get older not to want to be with somebody? Of course it is. So that what we should be doing is not indulging ourselves in the things that lead us away from Christ, but rather joining together and uniting together in what we've been united to, Christ Himself. That's where we find strength. That's where we find courage. That's why we're not called to Lone Ranger Christianity. We're called to a body of believers to unite ourselves with them in our union with Christ. The other thing that we know was going on, at least in Paul's day in the Romans, was God's grace and forgiveness are so big that, you know, if you do this, it won't be, you know, God will forgive you. And what does Paul say? Turn with me, if you would, to Romans 5. Romans 5, verse 20, and we're going to read into, into chapter 6. Paul says this. Now the law came into in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And we ought to say, praise the Lord, because human beings are capable of stirring up a whole mess of sin. So we praise the Lord that where sin abounded, grace superabounds. It's bigger. So grace abounded all the more. Then in verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Listen to what Paul says. For those who say that Paul did not preach a gospel, which sounded like you could do whatever you wanted then why chapter 6, first questions? He must have been saying things that made people think you can do whatever you want because Jesus has saved you from your sins. It must have sounded like that. That's not what he was saying, but it must have sounded that incredible. You mean to tell me that no matter what I've done, no matter what I do, I can't sin enough to take me away from the grace of God? That's exactly right. However, and there's a big... However, and this is what he says in Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. And that actually is weak. God forbid is what Paul says. Meganoita. God forbid it that you who've been saved with precious blood and have precious promises would go back to what you've been saved from. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness or resurrected life. Right now. We were called to. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that the old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Now, here's the point. One who has died has been set free from sin. Why would you go back and enslave yourself to that which you've been set free from? That's the point. These precious promises God promised all through the Old Testament. I will deliver my people. How can his people go back 
to Egypt when that's where he delivered them from. That's why Paul says, the Old Testament Israel was an example to you, church. Don't do what they did. Don't say, well, gosh, we had it good when we were pagans. No, you didn't. You were living a distorted, depraved life, carried away from the truths of God. Now, the second point that I want us to look at in Ephesians chapter, chapter 5, verse 6, then is this. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The second point, then, we had no deception. The second point is no kidding. Paul is trying to get us to take this seriously. He's not playing around. This is not a big joke. It's not, ha, 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 ha. He's dead serious. Now, it may be that what people were saying also was, yeah, okay, God is coming. If that's true, where is He? And we know that Peter was dealing with that in 2 Peter. And he says, don't doubt God's return just because He's gracious. Just because God has delighted to deliver many people into His kingdom, and therefore He's taking His time in doing that, don't think that His waiting what appears to be long in our eyes, 2,000 years, and what Peter's really saying is, well, that's two days to God. So two days, God has waited. Don't be deceived and think somehow that God's kidding when He says, at the end of the age, there is wrath coming. For the earth and all those who despise God will feel the wrath of God. It has been reserved for fire, Peter says. Purifying to those who believe and destructive to those who don't. And the tragedy is, is that it's not a destruction that basically means they're annihilated. It's a destruction that goes on for eternity. Can you imagine what it must be like to be being destroyed forever? You are being destroyed forever. It never stops. Paul says, this is no joke. We're not playing around. God hates those who hate him and his ways. And so he says here that the wrath of God is coming upon those who are adulterous. Remember that Jesus told us this himself. Jesus tells us that his return will be just like it in the days of Noah. And what were they doing in the time of the days of Noah? They were giving in marriage and taking in marriage and they were doing this and they were doing that. And they were just having a great old time. And Noah built an ark, most likely in the middle of an arid area. At best, where he built the ark, there was no significant water. So people stood around and said, that fool. Noah took 120 years to build the ark. Can you imagine what that must have been like for 120 years? You know, great-grandkids are going out there saying, Dad! Do you know about old man Noah? The dude's been building an ark for a hundred years. What a nut. And he keeps talking about run away because this wrath of God is coming. And so the kid's like really scared. He's going, What's, what are we to do? Is it, is it serious? And he goes, 
He's been saying that for years. He's been saying that for years. And see, men and women, part of the problem that we need to take seriously is, is that for some of us who've lived a long time, you've been hearing preachers stand up and say what I'm saying for years. Here's the good news of the gospel that delivers us from the wrath that is to come. Yep, that preacher's been saying that for years. And his, the preacher before him said it, and the preacher before him said it, and they've been saying it for 2,000 years. And see, for some of us, the temptation is to say, God's not really coming back. And therefore, his precious promises really aren't all that precious. They don't really matter all that much. Now, before I get off this point of no kidding, there's also this reality. This wrath is not only, and Paul uses a tense here, which doesn't just say wrath that's coming in the future. It also is a reality that there is wrath coming out on the sons of disobedience now. As much as it may seem like they get away with everything they're doing, the reality is that they don't often. The reality is that when we look at the places where, where wealth and power are to be found, often what we find is divorce, illegitimate children. We find indulgence to the point where life has become meaningless. We find suicide. We find drug overdose. We find alcoholism. If that's the good life, how good can it really be if you can't remember half of it? I mean, is it really, young people, your desire to esteem to be Paris Hilton? And parents, is that what you really want? And I, that's not to degrade a woman like Paris Hilton. It, tr it really grieves my heart every time I hear about people like that in the news to think that they have degraded themselves, that they have chosen such a life of debauchery that literally their reputation and everything about them is ugly and hideous, no matter how externally beautiful they may seem to be on the outside. It's tragic. She's not a person I hate. She's a person that I pray for and am deeply grieved for because she is destroying a life which she was given. She was made to live as a human being in harmony with God, and she is at war. And all who choose that path of life are in the same place. They are living as sons of disobedience. They are at war with God. Don't despise. Don't disregard the precious promises. The last point then, and look at verse 7. He says, Therefore do not become partners with them. So there's no deception. We're not kidding. No kidding. No partnering. No partnership. We do not partner with the world. Some of your translations may use a word, I think, associate. That's an unfortunate translation. The word Paul uses here really is partner. And it's important for us to see that. Why? Because Jesus tells us this. He calls us to be in the world, but not of it. Now, if we say that we're not supposed to associate with people who aren't Christians, that kind of locks us out from a whole lot of things we might be doing. We're not going to the park anymore. We're not going to school anymore. We're not going to the mall anymore, which that might actually do some of you good. <laughs> we're not going to a whole lot of places and we're not going to be doing a whole lot of things. For many of us, we'd have to quit our jobs. 
Because we're not, if, if what it really means is do not associate. That's not what it means. It means do not partner. And think about what Paul's really talking about here. He's talking about partnering, especially in the sense of sexual morality. It is not our call to go partner with those who despise and hate the truth of God. Now, for some of you in this room, there might be a temptation to say, but he's such a nice guy. Dennis, you just don't understand. He's such a nice guy. She's just such a great girl. Does she know the Lord? Well, no, but we're working on... No, we're we're not called to missionary dating. (laughs) Keep those two callings separate. Missionary? Yes. Dating, courting, whatever you want to call it, could care less. But whatever it is you're doing, biblically, hopefully, with the person of the opposite sex, is under biblical principles. And you go out with someone who actually loves those things. And delights in those things, just like you do. Because if you start to associate with people who are in the darkness to the point that you are delighting to partner with them, you have left the faith. I'm not saying whether or not you're truly a believer. What I'm saying is you've departed from the faith. Our faith calls us to not partner with unbelievers. To not unite ourselves in marriage or unite ourselves in physical union with people who are not believers. Which then keeps us, understand this, then you don't have to have abstinent programs for Christians. It's kind of a no-brainer. I don't marry someone who's not a believer and I don't unite myself physically to someone who's not my spouse. Why? Because I love Christ more than I love anybody else. See, really, that's the kicker here. In conclusion, is this. The real focal point here is this. Who are you really loving? See, the conclusion that Paul is looking at in this first section is walk in love. Why? Because God has showed you His love by giving us the precious promise of Christ. Because... The only other place in Ephesians where that word partner is used, go back over to chapter 3, verse 6, and look at what it says. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, member of the same body, and partakers, and that word actually could be translated partners, same word that's used over here, partners of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. See, men and women, Paul tells us in Titus 2, Verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, teaching us to say no to unrighteousness. The gospel didn't appear to say, go out there and do whatever makes you feel good. The problem is not that God wants to be a killjoy or He doesn't want you to feel good. The problem is, is that you haven't got enough sense to understand what really feels good. You settle for cheap imitations rather than the real deal. And anyone who's ever been really loved deeply and has experienced the cheap version of it and then experienced the real deal, really being loved by a person, really having somebody that's committed to you and walking with you day by day, week after week, month after month, year after year, there's no comparison. There's no comparison. That's not just 
a nice principle. That's not just not a nice ideal that the Christian right chooses to hold. I could really care less in some ways what the Christian right has to say. What I care about is what does Christ tell me? Because Christ loves me. Christ has given His life for me. Christ says, I don't call you just a servant. I call you my friend. What am I willing to trade for that? What am I willing to put up in the bargaining block for Christ? Who is everything. Who is the reality of the promise of God to us. That's what I want to leave you with today. Love, value, esteem highly the precious promise that God has shown to us in Christ and let your life shine that reality. May God make it so in our midst, we pray. Amen.